Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1998 film, The Bird People in China. This film follows a Japanese businessman named Wada. Through some sort of fault, his boss suffers an injury, and now he has to go on to this mission in China. Because there was a jade discovered, and he's sent to there to recover it. It's from this sort of uh, village that's way out of in the middle of nowhere. Almost, I could say, it hasn't civiliz- It's third world village. It hasn't reached civilization like other big cities. Yeah. And he's sent there, but along his journey, he runs into a yakuza. Now, this film is directed by Takashi Miike, and if you know anything about him, he likes his Yakuza movies. So <laughs> this is him trying to get a Yakuza in this. Because the boss is in debt with the Yakuza. So now the Yakuza is interested in this jade because, well, you guys owe us money and you need to pay us off. So they take this road trip, and so the first part of the movie is just kind of wacky hijinks on the road. Their car's breaking down all the time. Yeah. They're they're you know they're get they're getting lost. It's like a goofy road trip, but eventually they make their way to the village, and interestingly, they all sort of fall in love with the village. They well, there's this thing about flying. The villagers are always trying to learn to fly, and eventually, the whole search for the jade sort of becomes in the background. Yeah. And they, even the Yakuza, who is the most selfish of them, because he wants to just get this out of money so they can pay off the debts, he starts falling in love with the village. And eventually they learn um, one of the girls has blue eyes. And then they re- and she always talks about the, uh, the idea of flight came from her grandfather. They realize that his gr- her grandfather was British. He was a pilot. I'm supposing it was World War II. He crashed landed in this village. I think it's closer to World War One. It's back when it's back when uh, Britain still had a sizable amount of control over India, and they they say briefly he was flying from India to somewhere else. Okay. And if you look at the if you look at the remains of the plane that we see in the in the lake, uh, it looks more like something that would have been around maybe nineteen eighteen twenty somewhere in there. So it was hard to tell. It, it is you hard just to see tell. the tail of it, so I couldn't yeah. really tell what year. Yeah, I was just assuming World. It's War a wooden II. plane. That's a, a, a kind okay. of a big. Although they had wooden planes during World yeah. War Two. So, but anyway. Yeah. So, but and then through all of that, then they. Were, but eventually they're deciding to get take the gem and have the company come in and many villagers they reach an uh, agreement with the villagers to have you know this developed and all these things come in and many of them are happy because it's technology but if, but the yakuza goes crazy and he kills their only mean of transportation because they have a raft that's powered by turtles and he kills the turtles saying he and he basically gets a his gun, and he holds all of them hostage, saying, you know, I'm not going to let you do this to this village. Yeah. But then they sort of debate him, saying that, well... Wada actually says, yeah, Wada, what do the villagers want? Because yeah. when the villagers hear that they might be developed, uh, at least some of them, they're excited about it. You can, we're going to get... Elect, what did they yeah. say? We're going to get electricity, electricity and yeah. something else. I forget, but they're a little excited about it. Yeah, and they even said that, well, even if we don't do this... It's going to happen anyway. There's yes. nothing we can do. You can't stop what's coming, and so. But eventually, 
we follow it supposedly because it's narrated by Wada, and it's now 30 years later. Um, the village has been developed, and the Yakuza boss is now serves as the, I forget the official title, but he's very involved with it. Yeah. And that's basically most the end of the movie. And it's a really interesting movie because when you think of... I know you're, I'm assuming you haven't seen another film by this director. But no. But this is Takashi Miike, and he is known for kind of a very out-there director. It's some of his films have been banned in countries due to their violence, but he's also made family-friendly mo- films. He's also running this popular kid- children's program in Japan. So the guy is just crazy all over the place. So <laughs> I, w- I would say if you're familiar with something like Audition or Ichi the Killer, which are as more horror, Yakuza violent movies. This is a complete departure, even yeah. though I would say it is R-rated. Yeah, and I, I, I read up on the guy after I watched the film because I always have to, I realize I have to try and keep up with your level of knowledge on, on the directors that we look at. But yeah, I was impressed with the wide variety of films he does and just his output. I guess the year that he made this particular film, 1989, um, 98, or 98, 98. sorry. Um, he actually, at the same time, was working on seven or eight other films, and they all came out roughly at the He's same time. He's been directing movies for roughly 30 years. He's now has over 100. So it's that's, amazing. That's insane. It's amazing, and I, I can't speak for the quality of the other work, and I've I did read some of these articles that people take a, a umbrage at some of the the level of violence he uses in oh, his yeah. Yakuza films, but this quality of this film is is really quite good. It's yeah. very well constructed, and it it explores that theme of the uh, uh, conflict and interplay between development and the more simple kind of life that's represented by this village quite well and you can see just in the technical aspects of the film how he how he configures that contrast visually uh the the scenes when wada and uge i think that's how you pronounce his name the the yakuza the yakuza guy are uh um you know making their way to this village and they're still in a large city in japan or china uh the way he the way he the, the colors are different. There are a lot of blues and grays. There's a lot of fast movement, um, a lot of noise, kind of controlled chaos in those those scenes. And then when you get to the village, uh, he accentuates the lushness and and kind of primeval nature of the setting by using it looks like it's a, a yellow filter. So, which really accentuates those greens and makes it look like jade, <laughs> you know? Yes. Just very neat how he pulled that off. Yeah, especially like if we use the narration at the beginning when Watt is telling him how he got to take on this job. And like you said, it's very, the film is sped up very fast and the frames are going by so fast you can barely keep up with what's going on. Yes. And they even show that at the end, so when it's flashing forward and it's like he's back in Japan now. Yeah, but once it's yeah, like you said, once he gets to this village, it doesn't do any of that. It yeah. is just like green and yellow just throughout the whole film. Yeah, and it's in the first half. It's just kind of this frenetic, yeah, it was, film, we, and it I've, eases you from that to the last half of the film being much slower, but more of that just meditation on this sim- simple way of life these people have. This kind of very unique, and they don't want to damage it. And you completely understand. Um, 
the ambivalence WADA has, but then the single-minded purpose that the Yakuza, who's had a complete change of character, except yeah. he's still prone to use violence, yes. uh, so something doesn't change. But um, you can see the appeal of it and uh, kind of a nostalgia. And it's, it's interesting because it's embodied by the girl who is the descendant of this British aviator that crashed in the area and apparently couldn't get back out and had to live there, decided to live there. Yeah, I think he decided. He, like, yeah. it's like he just like with the Wada, you yeah. he fell in love with the place. He yes. just didn't care about ever coming back to yes. civilization. And they ease. I love the way they ease you into understanding this point of view by s- slowly but surely stripping Wada and UGA and who's the the other character he is so funny the interpreter yeah i forget his i forget name. his I name the interpreter the but. interpreter uh as they're making their way to this this village slowly but surely the technology is becoming more primitive and it's literally being stripped away from them yes. <laughs> at one point they're in this vehicle and it keeps losing parts yes. <laughs> the door falls off and the interpreter runs over and he, you think he's going to try and put it back on no he doesn't he just puts it by the side right says don't worry about it door, nobody's going to take door it falls off and right the, and, the and then the steering wheel, wheel falls off. off and they're just acting like it's no big deal goes, and, i saw that yeah. don't, don't try to hide that from me <laughs> and, and, and our, our, our two guys from Japan are, are becoming panic-stricken mm-hmm. while all this is going on. And, you know, and eventually they move to some other kind of motorized vehicle. I can't remember what it is. It's kind of, kind of looks like a cross between a tractor. And, it's a three-wheel thing, yeah. right? And then that thing eventually breaks down or they run up against a raging floodwaters, which becomes a big symbol in this film of nature, I think. Um and they're taken the rest of the way to the village with this. I thought this was hilarious. Um, a raft, which is euphemistically called a boat by the people. And they're going, this is no boat. This is a raft. What are you guys talking about? Yeah. And it's being pulled by a team of turtles. And then they get <laughs> stranded at the village because the, all the turtles ran are disappeared. Yes. So, and that's, that's why they're stuck there. Right. It's only made of so. transportation. It was funny because I'd seen this before, but when you were watching it the first time, and it was just that first half, and it's just this goofy road trip, I wonder if you were like, is this a good movie to talk about? Because this is just silly. <laughs> I actually liked it, you know, because just in general terms, my favorite genre of film is comedy, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, I liked it, and and I like I think that it it, it eases you into that mm-hmm. the, the more interesting questions that revolve around the later part of that film. Yeah. And it's interesting because the character we talked about Izuji, the yakuza, and how just he had because he starts off. I mean, he acts like you know every stereotypical gangster in a movie. He first meets Wada, he's slapping him around, he's beating him up. He's constantly beating him up in that first half. He's yes. beating up everyone else, showing off his toughness, and he is a typical gangster. Yeah, but at, I mean, even you could say it at the end when he threatens everybody at gunpoint, he still is. But he just has a complete change of heart. His motives. He's not interested in collecting the money at all from his boss, yeah. even though he knows because there's even that nightmare sequence which you, you saw that that is more of what i UK figured about. that like yes that stuff when it's just yeah. shots and he's shooting them back because they can't kill him like that is yeah. BK right there this is where he's having his change of heart right yeah. we see this see his character art develop and um he starts having these nightmares about his 
his life as a Yakuza enforcer. I guess he's kind of a mid-level enforcer. He's been sent on this mission. He doesn't want to go on it any more than Wada wanted to go on it. So they have that in common. And as he's having this change of heart, um, he starts having nightmares about his the way he had been living. And I think that's very effectively portrayed because he's the, he's the one he ends up. Yeah, he's going to use violence now, but it's not for himself. It's not for the Yakuza. It's to protect this village from being encroached upon by civilization. So that's a com- it's yeah. completely other directed for him at that point. So he has really changed a lot there. Yeah, and at the end we see that he stayed in that village as an advisor to basically see that there is a way that this can happen, and still the village maintains its you know, yes, traditions, its and unique honor. traditions. Yeah, and it's interesting because the whole thing is because well, the title is the Bird People because there's a whole belief they have in flying and they. To basically talk the Yuji um, out of you know killing them at gunpoint, he says, "Let's try to fly," and yeah. they do, and it's almost comical because they do, and they're you know they're the gliding machine they use is all tattered, their clothes are all bloody, and they're like, "Well, yeah. let's not do that again." That didn't work. That out. didn't work very but well. But as the flash forward, and we just see Muji um, from behind, and his hair is long and gray, so he's been there for a long time. He does it again, and we see him fly, and has that last shot of yeah. all these people around this giant mountain or hill they're flying around it with those machines yeah. so it makes you wonder is that real can they really fly yeah and, and, and it has that little bit of they call it magical realism yeah and and wada even says something to the effect when he's talking about dreaming of flying this is something that i actually it made me rethink the scene where they apparently have crashed after having mm-hmm. failed to fly with these wings and they crawl back up right made me rethink that scene because he says it's odd that he never dreams that he's done something that he actually did in real life. And I thought, oh, when did you fly in real life other than taking the plane to go to the village? Maybe that's all he's referring to. But I thought for a second maybe he was actually referring to that instance. And, you know, it's pretty clear that literally speaking, they they failed to fly. Yes. Um, But maybe there's some kind of a metaphor there. I don't know. Something about them not having still even with their time in the village not fully adapting and having that belief in the magic of the area yeah and by that time when uji's this old man has been there for many years he now fully believes and that's how he's able to fly i saw that's what i saw okay well and and maybe it's maybe it's the the flying is kind of a, a symbol for uh, recognizing and wanting to preserve the value of the place. Because I think ultimately he did come to that conclusion. Because he, he, comes, he comes back. He, he says in that narrative, he does come back. And, and by that time, Uji is very well ensconced as, as the protector. But in a legal sense, <laughs> in terms of you know working, I guess, with the Chinese government, um, although we don't ever know quite for sure. But it's in Yunnan province, so undoubtedly it is. Um, but really neat uh, theme, a very neat theme about uh, the fragility of the, some of these unique cultures and how easy it is for it to get wiped out or or uh, diluted to such an extent that you, you lose the value. And it made me think of an interesting real-life case, or there's several of them, um, Something that happened in the early 20th century and uh, during World War II and actually is, as far as I know, still extant today. 
in um, certain areas of the Pacific, uh, Melanesia in particular, uh, it's an archipelago of islands that was under joint, uh, during the colonial period, joint control of France and Britain, right? And there was this one particular ch chain, I hope I get the name right, Vanuatu, and one particular island on that chain called Tana. And for a brief period of time, airmen from uh, Allied powers used those islands as supply depots, um, airfields, and so forth. Well, the inhabitants of that those islands were at the level of uh, cultural development and contact with the outside world that this village in our film is portrayed as, almost perfectly isolated up to that point. So what ended up happening was that a form of cult or religion developed around these visitations. And there's one cult called uh, the cult of John Frum. And uh, nobody's quite sure if there was actually a John Frum. But it's clear from what they say that he was an American airman. And once the Americans left, this belief uh, uh, ended up growing up or, or in and around the, the, those islands that uh, they would come back someday, kind of a second coming, bringing great gifts, mm -hmm. cargo. They actually would use the word cargo for us. And what we needed to do was behave in a manner worthy of this. And they started, what ended up developing were um, uh, rituals and uh, that they would do on a on regular basis. They would build mock-ups of the planes. They would build mock-ups of the radio towers hmm. um, and all kinds of things. And what's kind of interesting about it is there's a lot of the cultural interaction behind this um, that we see to some degree in this film, too. Uh, for instance, um, there was a lot of resentment of the joint British and French uh, rulers of this island because they were trying to suppress local customs, in particular one custom having to do with a local plant called kava. They would make tea out of it, and it had psychoactive properties. kind of mellows you out. And they were trying to suppress the use of that and the religion surrounding it. Well, when the Americans showed up, they didn't much care about all that. They didn't want to suppress or anything. They just wanted them to help them build airfields and stuff. So they saw them as liberators. So they thought... Well, maybe, you know, these liberators will come back for us like a second coming if we if we do these things. And there is a mix of motivations uh, uh, in the in the local populace that holds this belief, uh, according to what I've read. Some of these uh, uh, people that kind of run the cult, they pretty sure they don't actually believe that uh, uh, the Americans are these. And kind the cult of, is still going to. This it's day? still going oh, today. Okay. Yeah. And, and others were more sincere about it. And uh, it's still going to this day. And it's interesting because there's much more cultural interaction these days in, with those islands in the outside world. But they're still, by our standards, quite primitive. Um, and a lot of them, I think, are kind of aware of... Because uh, some of them believe that the Americans were in touch with gods. 
And this is where they're getting all their stuff they're going to give us, all those gifts, right? Others, I think, are a little more realistic in their appraisals. But they all recognize the value of the belief system, its uniqueness, its centrality to their culture, and they don't want to get rid of it. And because that's the thing we talked about with the village, it's because he was saying, like, we can't let this happen. But I think it was very briefly mentioned that one of the elders just recently passed on. They feel, they see that if we had better medical care towards this village, you know, they people would live longer. Yeah. People who have these diseases wouldn't die of it because they can be treated now because yeah. we have the medicine. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that was the, the parents of the girl who is now yes. in charge of the cult, so to speak. Right. And I think she actually recognizes that she understands that. And so I think WADA is, is much more inclined to take those risks and have them connect with the outside world more. Whereas you see Yuji, yeah, he doesn't want to do that. He thinks that's too dangerous. It will actually destroy the culture. Maybe it's also because he is a Yakuza. He thinks, well, the Yakuza or gangs or yeah. criminals will find some way to take advantage of this. Yes. Thing. Yes. You that's... would see a rise in crime in this village. Yeah, and even legal entities like corporations. like mm-hmm. uh, Apparently, Wada's company is a jewel, a, a, a mining yeah. company for jewelry. Um, they'll do it. They could do it, too. They could easily wipe them out, right? Mm-hmm. Um very interesting. I just love the and I love the meditation on. Yeah. Uh, one of the best parts I think of this movie was the way he discovers who the grandfather was because he hears her singing a Scottish folk song. It's called Annie Laurie, and that's a very famous folk song that goes yeah. back, I think, to the 1600s. Yeah. But he hears that and he goes, "How does she know that?" Like, and then yeah. slowly on, he's like transcribing the. translating it to English and then giving it back to her so she understands that's one of the strongest parts of the movie. That's a great part of that movie. And his clue is her blue eyes. Yes. Right. And it's neat that he does it. He does the translation with this little gizmo. I've seen him. People don't use him much anymore, but it's a little portable translator. And he knows he has to kind of rush to get this done before the batteries run out. And the batteries do run out on his tape recorder that he had recorded this song with so that he could transcribe it again this theme of disappearing technology him being stripped of technology and at first kind of panicking about it in this case gaining knowledge about the true history of this village but at the other hand on the other hand recognizing and realizing the value of the direct interaction with now i get to interact with her voice as it is right it's kind of neat. Yeah, it is one of the sad things. I think he says the uh, he lost it in his monologue at the end. He reveals that he lost the tape recorder, and the recording of the girl singing that song was destroyed. Yeah, it, it's really neat because she's she's singing it with a very very heavy accent, and it's very difficult to make out the words. Uh, compounded with the fact that the first couple of verses of that song are basically in Scottish brogue anyway. Yeah. Uh, so he's really doing a good job of translating this and doing that. And she doesn't know what the words mean. Mm-mm. It's it's a lot like my example I can think of is early in life. You know, they had what they would had uh, very often have Catholic masses in Latin. And a lot of people literally didn't know what they were saying, but you memorize the sounds and you do them. And she was in that position. 
But then he's able to explain to her, and she understands the meaning of the words after that point. That's a great connection between those two characters. And even talking about tradition, because this is a Japanese businessman going over to China, I think it goes back to, because he's looking at these bird carvings, and it goes back to ancient times. I mean, much of Japanese culture, when it was very first originated, borrowed from Chinese culture. Yes. So it still has that dichotomy from Japan versus China, just the relations those two countries have had over the years. Yeah. And I I like that part of the film, too, when they're meeting the, I guess he's an archaeology student on their way out, and he's on... On their way in, and yes. he's on his way out, and he has that little picture of the bird carving. What's really neat is that whole culture developed around the fact that this British guy crashed, and these very remote and isolated people with a very limited conceptual apparatus had to try and make sense of things he uh, was telling them, uh, some of the books, the technical manuals that he still had in front of him. And the fact that he did fall from the sky, right? And it's it's neat how uh, this illustrates the, the the how that difference in conceptual apparatus will lead to wildly different interpretations and explanations of what you've uh, encountered. And that's what makes this unique, uh, and it, that's what made the uh, cargo cults cultures unique. Um, and it it. Uh, in a way, cements them, even in the face of further knowledge, where ultimately they find out that um, uh, the truth is very much unlike what they took it to be. Very often they will retain the traditions and retain the ceremonies and so forth because of the role it has in their culture, cementing them and creating a community. Yeah, and connecting it to uh, real-world topics, this story is a little bit different, but I remember the most recent thing was that there was this Christian missionary two, three years ago. I don't remember when, but he was going to this village that was completely isolated. And they specifically told him many times, do not go there. It's dangerous. But he went ahead anyway, and he was killed by the villagers. But it still has the idea of trying somebody trying to bring civilization and as far as real world. That's It's a bit different than this, quite a bit different. But that's the closest I can think of as far as real world events. Yeah. And well, in, in, in other, I, the other parallels I'm seeing, too, are ones that you sometimes you see in in missionary work, but also in anthropological work. Um, if people spend enough time in these cultures that they are attempting to proselytize or help or study, and we're talking months, years, they at some point don't see the value in trying to change them. They at, at some point recognize that uniqueness and then it would be a kind of a violation to attempt to change them. And they come to understand them, even if they don't ever come to, as it were, hardcore beliefs that the the culture they're studying actually have. And you see that a lot of times. And then very often they'll come back from those kinds of experiences, um, really lobbying hard for the protection of those indigenous groups. And sometimes they'll decide to go live with them, like we we do see with uh, our Yakuza man. Okay, so getting close to the end of my questions, is there anything else we want you should bring up before we wrap things up? Nothing I think. I've really enjoyed the film, and um, I think it's a testament to this guy's skills, especially after I read the 
wildly different kinds of films he's capable of generating. I don't know if I would enjoy those Yakuza yeah, films. Not, I don't think I would recommend them to you. But, uh, I, I like some of them, but it's some of them you kind of watch and go, okay, you're going a little bit too far there. Yeah. But this thing is charming, and it's a great meditation on uh, both the benefits and threats of technology uh, vis-a-vis um, indigenous cultures. I think it really does a good job with that. Yeah, I definitely would recommend it. And if you're familiar with Mikay's work, I definitely would recommend it because it's just something different from him. But like I said, he's after 100 films, he he covers practically almost every genre. So I would, it, it's going to be a little bit hard to find. So do what you can to find it. But yeah, I would recommend it. Yeah. And, you know, I, for those that want to take the path of least resistance, I mean, there is a, as far as I can tell, it's a, a full copy of it, uh, re- resident on YouTube. It's not the greatest quality, but it's watchable. Mm-hmm. And it has, fortunately for us, the subtitles. Yes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, for each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Seeing so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Thank you.